Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Today we read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul's letter to a relatively small group of Jesus followers within the very large city of Rome. What does it take to carry out this work of spreading the gospel day after day? What do the people there need, and what does Paul need, and how can they support one another? Again and again, this text centered us in mutuality, and not only in the human community, but in our lives with God as well. Thanks for being with us. Bobby, how are you? Hey, Amy, I'm doing okay. We're pressing hard toward the end of the semester. Everybody's like super tired and a little punchy, Mm -hmm. but you know, like you can see the future coming. (laughs) You can see summer headed our way. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. I I mean, just periodically I am reminded that like people in non-academic jobs don't really have that like light opens up in the summer quite in the same way. But it's a really nice perk of the academic life. Yeah, no, yeah, the cycles of different jobs are different, but not, you know, I'm not an academic, but my my life definitely looks different in summertime as opposed to right now. It is true. <laughs> <laughs> right now is like the big push before summertime. Back when um uh during Passover, there's like the first couple of days and the last couple of days are are Chagim, or like official holiday holidays where you don't do usual work. And then the days in between, you just have the dietary restrictions, but it's like, you know, kind of normal stuff. And so like the day before the second part of the Chag is always like, okay, we're going to have two days of Chag and then it's going to be Shabbat. So like, what are we going to need to do in order to get to Sunday and Monday, even though you're thinking about, like, I feel that's how I feel now. I'm like, okay, we're, we're, what do I have to do now? Because we're about to have this big break. So I'm like right. thinking ahead to like, what's going to have to, people are going to start leaving town at the end of May or whatever. So what are all the things we have yeah. to get their attention about before they do that? Yeah. I'm not good at thinking that way. No, nope. Nope. No. I just want to talk about right <laughs> now. Yeah. Let's talk That's about now. I like to react to what is happening, not imagine the future. And proactively address things. Hey, Amy, what you were just saying was just like reminding me that, so in the Christian world, we're currently in the season of Easter. So we're between Easter and we're headed toward Pentecost. Mm -hmm. There's also, you know, like that is based on the Jewish tradition that Christianity grows out of where there is a period of time between Passover and Shavuot. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I just had occurred to me that like it might be interesting to know what is the Jewish community doing in this period between Passover and Shavuot? Yeah, that's a great question. So the 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 main mitzvah commandment of Shavuot is is really really simple. 
is to count the days. And so every, traditionally you would do in the evening after dark, but really it could be any time. You count each day. There's a formula that you use to count it, how many days and how many weeks you are into the Omer. So like that's that's sort of the the anchoring yeah. practice that so I know a lot of people who actually it's their favorite thing to do every year just to mark each day and like oh, the progression yeah. of time in this very low key way. Of course, that's not enough for <laughs> for some for other people. Right. And so there's also this really cool tradition of taking each week and focusing on one of the uh, the word is firot, which is like these sort of mystical qualities oh, yeah. of God and thinking about how we enact them in our own lives. And so in the first week of the Omer, we're thinking about chesed, which is, you know, this unbounded sense of like loving, kind, generosity, yeah. that, you know. And then in the second week, you're thinking about gavura, which is much more like there have there do actually have to be boundaries, <laughs> And, you know, some discipline. And then the third week, you're thinking about what the word is to ferret, but like, how do you balance chesed with gavura? And so, so it sort of goes on through all the weeks. And then some communities do an even more complicated thing where eat, there are seven weeks and seven days of each week. So the first day is like chesed within chesed. And the second day is like oh. gavura within chesed. And the third day is to ferret within chesed. So you're thinking about how these Oh, yeah. Attributes of God would interact, interact. with each yeah. other um, and how that actually shows up in your life. So it's, oh, it's one of these one of these traditions that like the the commanded practice is minimal, is to count right. the days. And that creates space for all kinds of all kinds of other things. You know, it's kind of lovely to just, you know, so, some of the Jewish practices are like, like pretty intense just in terms of like if you're going to do the here's a long list of things you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the end of that you're kind of tired and you don't want to think about the spirit. But yeah, Shavuot has a nice uh has yeah. some spaciousness in it. Amy, you were yeah. using the word omer just there. What mm. does that mean in that context? I mean it, okay, so is an omer like uh, that's such a good question because in my head, I don't know, you just count the Omer. Is it a bundle of is it a bundle of wheat? That's what I think it means. I don't think back it and is look at my too. Hebrew, but yeah, if we both so, get that, it must be right. We're counting the days between two harvests. Like we're counting the days between the wheat harvest and the barley harvest. And so again, this goes back to how like, you know, Judaism, especially as it's recounted in the Bible, has these two layers. It has like this agricultural layer that's totally tied to the cycles of the earth and the moon and the harvest. And then we have sort of layered on top of it the story of the Jewish people. And so so those things just sort of, you know, exist on top of each other. But yeah, we are, we're between two harvests. So we count our- I really like that. And you're counting up. Like you're counting like We're counting up. Mm-hmm. That's I'm, yeah. I was just thinking about like I, I'm so used to counting down. Like how many mm-hmm. more days is it until whatever? And I just yeah. I'm just I don't know. Today I'm just really enjoying the concept of like there is harvest. Like you're it's additive. Like it is becoming more full until the fullness. Mm. I just really I'm just really liking that. I don't know quite what to do with it, but I I sort of like. I yeah, like yeah. I, no, I like that. that. I like about. that. We're counting up, not down. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. All right. Well, thanks for that. We'll talk more about Shavuot when we get to uh, Pentecost here. When yeah. we get to Shavuot. <laughs> we'll yeah, get to the Pentecost text here in a couple we're, of weeks. Uh, we're not there yet. We're, we're, <laughs> we're working our way. 
Well, we start a new book today. We start the book of Romans. We do. Which is not just a new book, but it's kind of a new genre. It is. New genre of book. Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of the, the interesting things in the narrative lectionary. And I, I mean, I think I, I think I appreciate it. Uh, in the period between Easter and Pentecost, we move to the book of Acts, as we have been doing the last couple of weeks. And then we read part of one of Paul's letters. And so we have moved uh, this week, we're moving into epistolary literature, you know, a, a, a letter that Paul has written. And it's just a different kind of text. It's not a narrative. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, a story. It's mm-hmm. Paul trying to present himself and his ideas to a community. And so you have to like shift kind of dramatically, really, yeah. to thinking about how to read this sort of text and how to deal with the kind of ideas that Paul's putting out there. It's a good challenge. I will say, you know, I am uh, somebody who likes narratives a lot, and I'm somebody who prefers mostly the New Testament to be in the Gospels. And so reading Pauline literature is outside of my sort of Mm day-to-day, but I I like to do it. It's not something I am as practiced at as I am reading other other parts of the biblical text. Yeah, yeah. No, I can really appreciate that. And it— it's so interesting, not only that, you know, it's not stories, but there's no response to it. Like, this is mm. just, it's just Paul, you know? Yeah. And, like, he's trying to build a relationship with people, and he's not there. And yeah. and they don't get to answer him, and he doesn't get to ask them questions, really. And I don't know, all the things that I would say, like, these would be the tools for bringing someone along into a new system of beliefs. Right. He doesn't have access to any of those. He's right. just writing letters. Yeah. So on the one hand, you could say like, well, you got to hold court. Like, that's true. No one can interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's no heckling, but it's an interesting challenge. Can I ask one more background question about Paul? Sure, yeah. And then maybe we can, maybe we can launch in. Was he like, would the people in Rome have known who he was? Like, was he... Was he kind of, you know, a mini celebrity at that time? It's a little bit hard to know because, you know, we only really know about Paul. I mean, we know a little bit about Paul from the book of Acts. And so he was sort of a Mm -hmm. character in that story. And then we know about him from his own letters. And so, like, when you read the New Testament, like, he is a major figure. Right. There were other people around, too. And so it's hard to know exactly how major he was in his own time before, like— Retrospectively, he retrospect became, right. If you look at how much of the New Testament is made up of his words, then he is very powerful. But yeah, that's retrospective. My sense of it, my my short answer is Paul seems to. He says that people have given him news about the church in Rome, mm-hmm. uh, and there seem to be sort of Christians who are going from place to place and sort of sharing, like, "Oh, here's what's happening over yonder," you know. And so, I, I, my guess is that they do know who he is. Mm-hmm. And he certainly knows who they are mm-hmm. and uh, that they he, that there's some reputation that he has already among them. But I don't know that they would have thought of him as like the celebrity mm-hmm. apostle as opposed to other Christian, early Christian missionaries. But they would have thought of him as somebody, you know, doing the Lord's work and yeah. part of their bigger mission. But I'm not sure he's like the Taylor Swift you know, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> Christian <laughs> missionary Swift wrote me a letter. Yeah. Oh, she broke up with Joel, and I can't even believe it. Happened. Oh, I know. I heard that. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you want to say to, to sort of anchor us a little bit before we start reading? 
Oh, yeah. So, you know, in terms of the letter to the Romans itself, not Paul just sort of generally. Yeah, yeah. This letter actually is different than all of Paul's other letters in some ways that we were just gesturing toward. Most of Paul's letters, the way that they come about is he goes someplace, he founds a community, he gets it running, and then he moves on someplace else. And then he'll write back to them, either because he needs more money from them or Mm -hmm. because somebody has told him that something's happening, that they've gotten confused about something. And so he'll write a letter back and say, oh, here's what you need to know. Or sometimes he just writes what seem like thank you notes. Like part of Philippians just seems like Paul saying, hey, y'all are awesome. And thank you for supporting my ministry. The letter to the Romans, by contrast, Paul says he's never been there. He doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't know them personally. And so this letter in some way is Paul writing this community that he knows of, that probably knows of him. And he's wanting to come and visit them and be welcome to them uh, in their community, as we'll see. And so it's this, in a different way, it's Paul sort of trying to say like, hey, here's who I am. Here's what my understanding of the faith is. And so with Romans, you get a little bit more of a sense of like, if Paul were going to talk about his faith without any assumption that you already know what his faith is, mm-hmm. this is Romans is about as close as you're going to get. Mm-hmm. The other places, they kind of already know what Paul thinks. And so you have to piece it together sometimes. But but Romans is not quite the same. That's really important. And I think that, you know, I said earlier that he's trying to establish a relationship with people through a letter. And it seems like what you're saying is that is more true in this letter and the other letters, mm-hmm. you know, maintaining a relationship, whatever. Yeah, that's but, exactly right. But he had been there. So that that's pretty different. That's exactly right. right. So in that sense, Romans is the closest thing you kind of get to. a. It's not a systematic theology, but it's more like a system of theology than Paul's other letters. Yeah. And the book of Romans has been an enormously important book all throughout Christian history and has led to some of the r- radical transformations of Christian faith. Like, you know, Augustine, the great Catholic theologian of the fifth century, was uh, a reader of Romans, as was Martin Luther in the Reformation and Karl Barth in the... Wow. Uh, early 20th century. Like it's been an, an important book. I think that's what I want to say about that. Okay, great. So maybe the fact that this is Paul's introduction to this community explains why the first chunk of this text is what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the yeah. long description of who Paul is. So yeah. we are reading from Romans chapter one, verses one through 17 today. And I am reading the NRSV. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This in the NRSV is one, I want to say sentence, but I don't even think it has a verb. Like, this reminds me of my first 
maybe probably not first semester, but like the early Greek classes that I took and how incredibly complex the syntax could be. Yes, I think that's right. And Paul is notorious for writing complicated sentences. And we, we tend to think, like there's a couple places like in Galatians where Paul, at the very end of his letter, he's like, I'm writing this with my own hand. Look how big my letters are. And, you know, like, it's like, it's almost like he's a, in pre-K, like I watch my daughter trying to make her letters. I'm like, she's really good at it, but like, it just, it takes some work when you don't know how to write. And so like her letters are enormous. All of that to say, we think what probably happened is that Paul dictated his letters. And so then mm. a scribe wrote them. And then sometimes at the end, he would write a little note himself. Mm-hmm. And so then when he's writing in his own hand, he's like, ha ha, look how, look how I write. And so... Some of what seems a little complex and convoluted about Paul is probably mm-hmm. that he's talking mm-hmm. and not actually like mm-hmm. composing, mm-hmm. and therefore the you know the, yeah, we the way that you run things together. It's, ex- yeah. it's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. So the way that I understand this first section is there are a couple of key points. It's sort of like it gives you Paul and tells you a little bit about Paul and then it moves on once it mentions the gospel and it talks about the gospel and then it moves on again once it talks about the sun. So let's just parse this out a little bit. Sure, yeah. What does it tell us about Paul? Servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? I think that's right. And then, he, and then he goes into what he means about the good news. Yes, yeah. what he means about, yes, what do we mean by gospel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, what is this gospel to which we refer? You know, we, you and I have started talking about our summer series a little bit on holiness. And this phrase set apart for the gospel of God just sort oh, of yeah. like gave me this little zing of, oh, yeah. you know, the, the concept of holiness, and at least in the Hebrew language, is really tied to the idea of being set apart so I, I imagine this not looking at the Greek as in some way like sanctified for this purpose, set aside for this holy yeah. purpose. I think that's exactly right. I, I really love that connection, Amy. Yeah. So an apostle, that is somebody who has been sent for, and then this set apart for a purpose. So there is a, I mean, yeah. So he has a special status, a special task that has been given to him. That word that the NRSV translates as servant, of course, is doulos, which in Greek is the word for slave. And so the CEB translates a slave of Christ Jesus. And so I, I just think, like, I don't know how, like, there's all, all sorts of complicated issues about how you translate that. Yeah. Servant sometimes suggests, like, somebody who's, you know, got a certain kind of job and they get paid to do it and they, you know, have a status in the household. The word slave, I think, is more appropriate to what Paul is thinking, which is he really doesn't present himself as having any status. Mm -hmm. He's presenting himself as somebody who has been given a task by Jesus, and he doesn't really that much have a choice about about whether he's going to do it or not. Yeah. Um, So he's presenting himself as a sort of humble, as a person of low status, as a person with a task Mm -hmm. that must be done. And, and you I think know, that's important for Paul. I think that's important too. And it's reminding me of the language that's used when the Israelites leave slavery in Egypt, that they will no longer be slaves of Adim to Pharaoh, but they yes. will become slaves to God. It's the same yes. word. Like the word for, for prayer, or maybe not prayer, but like 
religious worship. The word for worship in Hebrew is avodah. It's like yeah. the work of, of, of slavery, really. And that word has a heaviness in English, and it should because of the history of, of humans enslaving other humans. But I think I'm really glad you put that fine point on it, that, that Paul is setting him up himself up here in that tradition of, you know, being a, a, a slave of God instead of Pharaoh, and also with that sense that you don't, he doesn't have a choice. I really appreciate your bringing in that, you know, the sort of political aspect of it too, the Pharaoh and God. This is pretty subtle in Romans, and especially if, if you've kind of gotten used to Romans speak or Christian speak. But there are some political sort of tensions here as well. The calling Jesus Christ Jesus mm. is Christ here, uh, Christos, is calling Jesus the Messiah, which of course has a political dimension, right? The mm-hmm. sort of the one who has come to reestablish Israel. And in, in that sense, we saw in Matthew how nervous Herod was mm-hmm. about the announcement of the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And so this also has that sort of connotation with it, at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the word good news there, euangelion, is um, a word that is used in Rome to talk about, you know, announcing the arrival of the king or announcing the, the, imp- the emperor's birthday or announcing, you know, the succession to the throne of a new emperor. And so there is, a, there is an edge here when you're writing to Rome saying, I'm writing to you about Jesus, who is the Messiah, and mm-hmm. this is good, this is euangelion. Like, so... Yeah. I think Paul is also saying, in the same way that you were talking about freed from Pharaoh to serve God, I think Paul is also saying this is about freedom from the emperor Mm -hmm. to serve God Mm -hmm. or to serve Jesus, as the case Mm -hmm. might be. Mm -hmm. And so there's a political uh, significance to this. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. I think that we, you know, we don't use the word Messiah to mean other things. Right. (laughs) So you lose it in English. But yeah, I mean, it's it's the anointed one that that which usually referred to the king, yeah. you know, the chosen one for a leader, and and uh, yeah, that was until it took on all this religious religious significance that was sort of in a different realm, <laughs> you know, a heavenly realm instead of an earthly realm. It was the same. Yeah, it was the same. So then it moves on to the gospel. And it tells us this is the gospel which God promised beforehand through the prophets concerning his son. Right. Right. These are the two pieces we get about the gospel. Yeah. I don't know. What what is significant about what do we what do we glean from that? I mean, to me, the the important thing there, I mean, there's a lot that's important, but mm-hmm. this idea that the son has been promised ahead of time through the prophets mm-hmm. is Paul trying to be very clear that the gospel of Jesus, which is being preached now in the Gentile world of Rome, is in its at its core a Jewish gospel that comes from the Jewish scripture. And so uh, uh, Paul, is at, Paul is concerned in this letter and elsewhere to think about the relationship of Jewish Christians in particular and Gentile Christians and how they, they relate to each other. But also I think how the Christian story relates to the Jewish story as a Jewish story. And so just connecting it to the prophets is a reminder that this is not a new story that just got started, Mm -hmm. but it's something that has a longer history with a particular Mm -hmm. group of people. 
And maybe this is a dumb question, but the Gentile community in Rome would know that, just saying prophets and holy scriptures. They would know we're talking about the scriptures of Israel and the prophets of Israel. I think so. Yeah. I mean, there were Jews in Rome. And so I think that they, Mm -hmm. I think these Christians are probably familiar. Mm -hmm. You might imagine that there are some in this community who actually are Jewish and have come to believe in Jesus. And there are others who are Gentile. And one of the questions is how do, how do they relate to each other? Yeah. Are they supposed to be part of the same community or are they supposed to be part of different communities? I think this is one of the live issues in, in this period. Yeah. Okay, great. So then we move on to the son Mm -hmm. descended from David, according to the flesh declared son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. That's a really Mm -hmm. long phrase. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Jesus Christ, our Lord, just to be clear. Yeah. (laughs) And, and then that sort of ties us back to the beginning. Cause the first, the very first thing was Paul is a servant, a slave of this guy. Yeah. So now we've, we've come back to this guy. Okay. Can you talk to me a little bit about that middle part, that son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead? Yeah, that's a lot. The CEB, he was publicly identified as God's son with power through his resurrection from the dead. Oh, that's easier. I think, which clarifies some things for sure. Yeah. Like the way that I understand that is according to the flesh. So in his humanness, he was descended from David. And so in that sense, he is in the proper line of messiahship. Yeah. The problem that Paul had with Jesus initially, you know, Paul was a persecutor of Christians early in his life. The problem he had with Jesus was Jesus was not a very good messiah in the sense of what was expected, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. instead of restoring Israel, he, he got himself killed. Right. And so it's like, okay, well, you can't be the messiah if you get yourself killed, mm-hmm. right? And so I think what Paul is saying here is it was not clear in Jesus's own lifetime that Jesus was the Messiah. It's only once he's resurrected, mm-hmm. once Paul encounters resurrected Jesus, now he's got to rethink everything because mm-hmm. God doesn't just resurrect any old body. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, eventually, yes, in the general resurrection. But in this moment, Jesus, his resurrection is a sign of special favor from God. Mm-hmm. So now you've got to rethink like, oh, this guy got resurrected. He must be somebody important. And then, oh, he's God's son. He's God's chosen one. So the resurrection is the confirmation of the Messiahship of Jesus, which was always already there, but you didn't know it was there. Right. Until the resurrection. No, that's really helpful. And it 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 ties to the descended from David piece yes. in a helpful way to me, that these are sort of two, two signs of Messiahship. Yes. And you're right, the the second one, the first one descended from David, fine. You would have known that already, but lots of people are descended from David. Like that's, right. <laughs> you know, it's a limiting pool, but it doesn't really tell you who it is. And then the other one, you have to wait until he dies. Yes. To know. Right. Yeah. Which interestingly is also true in the gospels in a sense. You, you know how Jesus is constantly like in Matthew and elsewhere saying like, y'all aren't going to understand this right now, yeah. but you're going to mm-hmm. understand it later. Mm-hmm. And later is pointing forward to the resurrection. There's even a sense that people who were like walking around with Jesus didn't fully get what he was yes. about mm-hmm. until the resurrection. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That last phrase there, the son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That phrase is really important too. In the Jewish tradition, of course, that word Lord, kurios, is pointing back to the Hebrew scriptures, right? 
I mean, it is a pointing back. I mean, again, this is where I get all tied up. Like, yes, that would be the term for Lord. That would be the proverbial. That is the God figure. Yes. Yeah. The one and only God figure in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. So where the divine name appears in the Hebrew version of the scripture, Mm. in the Greek version, kurios is used. Mm-hmm. And so you speak, you know, when you pronounce God's the divine name, name, not just God, but where the right, tetragrammaton, so they, the, the actual tetragrammaton, prop- right? Oy, voy, voy, that makes my stomach hurt. So when Jew. you see the divine, <laughs> when a, when Jewish people reading the Hebrew scriptures see the divine name, they say Adonai, which Adonai means Adonai or Hashem, yeah. Right, and so Adonai, Lord in Hebrew, Kurios in Greek, and so then that becomes the divine name, and so Jesus Christ, our Lord. In that one sense, if you have the eyes to see it, is saying, this is God revealed, mm. right? Lord also has, you know, the general connotation of someone with authority. In Rome, Lord also was one of the titles of Caesar, Curios, the Lord of all. And so, like, here's a, there's a political edge to it. We're writing to Rome about this one who is the Lord. And, you know, and Caesar is also Lord. So... That one word connotes all sorts of implications. Yeah. That was making me think, Bobby, about like the, maybe the burning bush scene, or maybe there are some others too, where, you know, in the early Hebrew Bible texts, sometimes the word for God, Elohim is used. And sometimes the word Adonai, which is like the proper, refers to the proper name of God is used. And then there are these texts that like clearly say like, no, the Lord, they're the same. Like Elohim is Adonai. They're the same. And this seems like the the Christian iteration of that in some way. Yeah. Maybe. Sometimes I feel like in modern day, in modern life, Christians often toss the word Lord out with reference to Jesus a little casually. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, Lord Jesus Christ. But it actually has like enormous weight in both religious and political realms. Yeah. Like it is a is a dramatic claim, in fact, that Paul is making here. Okay, the last little bit of this very long introduction. So again, it sort of has tied us back to the beginning a little bit because now it's mentioned, you know, Jesus Christ, who is the person that Paul was enslaved to, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, which again ties back to the beginning because Paul calls himself an apostle, Mm -hmm. to bring the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, which I guess is the, that's the call. Right? That's the missionary call to the Gentile communities. Right. And I think the way that I want to read that is, so Paul understands himself to have a special task from Jesus, which is to spread the gospel Mm -hmm. among the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think he also is recognizing that the church in Rome already also has that call. And so Mm. they, some of them are Gentiles who have been called, and they are also calling Gentiles. So I don't think Paul's exactly saying, like, it's my job to, call you guys. That's so helpful because that was one of my questions. Like, is he, it sometimes seems like he's he's writing this to bring people in, but then it sometimes seems like he's writing to people who are already in, already followers of Jesus. Yeah. So that's, that's really helpful to know that it's, they're sort of also doing this work within their own community. Right. That's the way I think about it. Yeah. And like, there's a whole, whole, whole lot of Gentiles. I mean, the city of Rome, there's like a million people at this point in history. And so- yeah, you need all the you need all the apostles you can get 
Mm-hmm. And so I think Paul is saying, I'm that, you're that, like we got a whole lot of work to do, y'all. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Yeah. Because as I was reading, I was like, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, who is he talking about? But that answers the question, who is he talking about? This core yeah. group within Rome that is that is doing the same work he's doing. So, so Paul really is aligning himself with the people to whom he is writing. That's the way I see it. He's, he's trying to acknowledge that they have already begun the work in Rome yeah. that he also has been called to do. Yes. And he wants to join them in Rome doing what they are doing together. Yeah. Yeah. You can read Paul a little bit like, yeah, paternalistic. Like, yeah, it's really cute what you're doing over there, but like, I'm going to come do the real deal. And I mean, you probably could read Paul that way here, but I don't, to me, that's a less that's not what you really see. generative way of, of reading it. Yeah. Okay, so that was one one really long sentence in my translation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we move on? Is there anything else you want to say about the introductory words? I just, I really love this phrase in verse seven, to those in Rome who are dearly loved by God and called to be God's people, or at least that's what it is in the CEB. Mm. Like, that's just a really nice, like, I am writing to you and I recognize that you are beloved of God and you're called to be God's people. And I don't know, I just, mm. I don't have much to say about that other than I feel like it's nice to affirm people's belovedness and call. Yeah. And then grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, like it, mm-hmm. it is, it is a very, it's very, it's flowery and hard to read for me, at least yeah, in yeah. English, but it really, um, it, it does feel like this very sort of open and generative and respectful and loving place to, yeah. to begin your address. Yeah, I think that's right. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, Minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurich, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy, and that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts, and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now back to this week's podcast. Okay, I'm going to pick up. You ready? Yes, let's do it. I'm in verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. 
For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I will somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I am longing to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, or rather so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Hence, my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I told you beforehand, Bobby, that I understand the first part of this paragraph, and I don't understand the second part of this paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we'll we'll just, uh, we can sort of maybe talk about it in chunks, but um, that part where you said, mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that is just so, it is so beautiful. Let's just start there. Let's always start with the mm, so that mm. we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Yeah. Both yours and mine. What what's drawing your energy there? That like what what moved you to grunt, even <laughs> unto grunting, even what unto grunting, even yeah. unto grunting. That's like you know that's as uh, as gregarious as uh, Presbyterians get. Like, it's like mm, it's like mm. a little strong for a Presbyterian. <laughs> usually it's usually it's more of a silent nod. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Silent nods don't work as well in podcasts, though. I'm discovering. Mm, true. True. <laughs> I just really love that idea. Like, uh, this is part of the reason that I re- read Paul previously as saying we're in this thing together and not as saying I've got some stuff to come tell you. This sort of mutual encouragement. What it's reminding me of, I mean, you know, this is anecdotal, of course, but uh, the church that I founded back in 2015, Mercy Community Church, was based on a model uh, in Atlanta um, also called Mercy Community Church. And the pastor there was Chad Hyatt. And I I got a lot of inspiration from visiting that community and learning what they were doing and feeling inspired by how they talked about the gospel and how they thought about the community and how they did their worship together. And then we took that back to Little Rock and we planted a church in Little Rock. And then Chad came to visit us. And it was a little bit like we were like, come and share with us here what you do back in Atlanta. And so it was like, could you come inspire us a little bit? Yeah. But at the same time, like him coming to us and seeing what we were doing in Little Rock that was similar to what he was doing in Atlanta, but wasn't the same thing, different people, a bigger, like what he was trying to do sort of in a new place. And so it really was this kind of mutual encouragement. We come to your place, you come to our place. It's not exactly that I need you to be here or you need me to be there. But when we're together, we can inspire each other. That's kind of how I read Paul here. Yeah, that's really lovely. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I can only imagine how how it would feel to be like really trying to spread the gospel at this moment in history. Like I would imagine a lot more no's than yeses and that people think you're nuts. Like, absolutely, you know, absolutely right, and and that's a lot of vulnerability and a lot of rejection, and a, yeah. you know, and so to to be with like minded folks who are doing the same hard work, 
I think would be enormously encouraging. That's exactly right. And there's not a lot of like pats on the back and there's not a lot of money involved. Like Paul, wherever Mm -hmm. he was going, was was working a day job so he could preach the gospel without asking for money. And like he just worked kind of hard, thankless hours. And when you're doing that kind of work, you need people who are who are also in the in the work with you. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of, you know, uh, several weeks ago we were we started reading the book of Leviticus in our Torah cycle and there was a part in the beginning where I wish I could remember the exact reference, but the the text mentioned fire several times sort of in close proximity. And they're talking about sacrifices, so that's why we're talking about fire. But you know, the rabbis found it strange how many times the fire was mentioned. And so they assigned uh, significance to each time, like some kind of spiritual significance. And the thing that really stood out to me was, you know, one of the fires came from the leader and was encouraging the community, like trying to light fire sort of within the community. But the leader also needed the community to have fire and bring it back yeah. to light the leader's fire. Like it can't yes. just be sort of one one direction. Yes. That model works a little bit better if we envision Paul as like the leader and the other places are, you know, whatever, which I'm not sure is quite accurate. But I think the general idea that we have to stoke each other's fires, they don't, they're, they don't just go on forever on right, their exactly. own. Like yeah. we wish they would, but yeah, they, they take a beating. No, that's really important. And I mean, the word that I, you know, I think a lot of times in ministry, the it's the word that is expectation more than it's encouragement. Mm. We have lots of expectations about ourselves and each other and our congregations and our congregations have expectations of us. And that idea of lighting each other's fires, I think is really, really important. Yeah. Bobby, in this, well, I really, I guess in, in, in all of this section, but it, there's a note in my study Bible in particular about the word faith in this section yeah. And what what we think Paul means by it. So it comes up first here in verse 8, because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. And the, the note in my study Bible is that the, the Greek term maybe would be better translated in this particular context, in the context of Paul, as faithfulness. Mm-hmm. I guess I have sort of a two-part question. One is, does that seem, does that seem like a good idea to you? Mm-hmm. And then if so, how does that change the resonance to say faithfulness versus faith? How does that change what we're talking about? Yeah, the CEB actually just translates it faithfulness. Okay, great. <laughs> the Greek there is pistis, which mm-hmm. used to often be translated as belief, which I think is the weakest of all of them. Your belief is being spread throughout the whole world. Like everybody's talking about, you know, how intellectually committed you are. To me, this is about trust. Like, it's about how do you live your life? And so faithfulness, like commitment, like trusting uh, the good news of the gospel in this case, and living that out is what is being grappled with here. Not about simply like a cognitive agreement with right. something, which I right. think belief sometimes gets to. Mm-hmm. And then faith sometimes has a sort of internal sense to it, the way we tend mm-hmm. to use it. Mm-hmm. So that faithfulness to me on the ground, how are, where, how are you committing your life and what are you doing and how are you holding firm to, to what your calling has been? Yeah, That's what it does for me. What do you think about that? I, I mean, I really like that and I agree. And it, 
you know, faithfulness in Hebrew would be emunah, and that and a, and a an additional layer that I would add to that is that when you're showing emunah, showing faithfulness, it's not just your loyalty to something or your trust in something, but it's also demonstrating that you yourself are worthy of trust and oh, worthy yeah. of loyalty. Like you're showing your own commitment, your own sort of showing yeah. upness. So again, there's this, there's just a mutuality. Yeah. I really love that way of reading it. Emunah, is that, is that the word? Yeah, emunah. I love that. Related to amen, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or amen, yeah. as we say it here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or amen. Yes, yes. Okay, the second part of this paragraph is harder for me to understand. So it moves on then to this image I've I've really wanted to come to you, haven't been able to come yet. So in order that I may reap some harvest among you, what is he talking about? It got (laughs) like creepy all of a sudden to me. It got a little creepy. I'm like, you want to reap this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a debate about what Paul may have meant here. It's, you know, the first part of that is clear enough that Paul's been trying to get to Rome for a while and circumstance or whatever it is uh, has prevented him from arriving. And so he's felt some urgency about that. Reaping of harvest, you know, here's the way that, that I could think about it. Uh, one which I don't really like is that Paul wants to come and evangelize the community that's already there and see if he can get them to really believe the gospel the right way. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's in, sometimes it's read that way, but I don't think that is in keeping with what he just said about mutual faithfulness and uh, lifting each other up. The second idea is that Paul can come to Rome and reap harvest amongst the Gentiles of Rome, right? And here it's sort of like, it's that harvest metaphor from Matthew 13 about bringing in the, you know, the believers. Mm -hmm. If you read it that way, then it's something like, Y'all have a huge task, right? The church in Rome is, I don't know, 50 people, 100 people. Mm-hmm. It's a small, million people city. Like there's a lot of work to do. So let me come and join you and let's see if I can help with the harvest. Mm-hmm. I like to read it that way, I think. Mm-hmm. Let me let me see if I can contribute to your mission because mm-hmm. I've been pretty good at it in other places. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to support your work. A third way to read it is Paul's looking for some financial harvest to help him go on to other places and um, proclaim the mission even further. Mm. That might also be possible. I think Paul actually is looking for financial support from the church in Rome. But I think he's talking about more than that here. Any of that make any Yeah, it does. I mean, I think it just, it goes back to my sort of initial question that you answered sort of at the beginning, which was so helpful, but but I didn't have it when I was, you know, previewing this text before our conversation, that what he's talking to a small group of faithful folks within a very large city. Yes. And I really like all the ways in which we've seen them sort of aligning and like the sense of mutuality that Paul is, is emphasizing and sort of shared vision and shared mission. So yeah, I, I could see how it would make sense that, that he can say, like, I have had success among the rest of, some success among the rest of the Gentiles. Yeah. And so I've been hoping to come, come to y'all too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, like, this is a pretty weak analogy, but it's like when you bring in a consultant, you know, to your mm. community to like, 
inspire you or to tell you how they've been doing stuff in their place that's been really successful. And it sort of reinvigorates your organization. I think of it a little bit like that. Yeah, that's so interesting. Now I'm thinking about the last time we had like a, a, you know, scholar or a musician in residence here and the way that they can push, they can push on things that it's Mm -hmm. hard for you to push on if it's your home community, like the norms are the norms are the norms and it's just really hard to push. And if you, if someone comes in, no one expects them to follow the norms. And exactly. so yeah. they try other things and people are like, oh, maybe I did like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's a nice way to think about their missions being aligned. And then what is this debtor language? Yeah. Can we read your, you're in verse 14. Yeah. I am a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's a another complicated. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to say that about every single thing we read in Romans, that this is a complicated idea that everybody debates about. The language of Greek and barbarian, I think there is, like in the CEB, Greeks and those who don't speak Greek, it's trying to get at the, this issue of, you know, civilized and uncivilized, yeah. the way it was framed. Wise and yeah, foolish. showing the extremes, right? It's, yeah. it, I mean, he's just showing, I would imagine this is just supposed to show the expanse of like, basically, I am a debtor to people all yeah. over the map, right? Yeah. Yeah. Elites and non elites, everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The CEB translates, I have a responsibility to. Mm. And it's kind of working with that image of debt. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually working in a really helpful way that, like, the, here's the way I, I'm thinking about it right now. I think I might've gotten this from N.T. Wright for whatever whatever we think about that, Um, is that Paul has been given this mission by Jesus that he's supposed to take this thing to the Gentile world. And so in that sense, he owes something to the Gentile world. He is is in their debt because he has this thing that really belongs to them. That is the gospel. And so his task is to bring this thing that he owes them to everybody, both the Jew and the Greek. And so he wants to come to Rome because that's, you know, the center of Gentileness. And he wants to be among them sharing this thing that he that he owes to them, that that is his responsibility to bring to them. Mm-hmm. That makes a, the most sense to me of any way I can think to read this. No, that's really that I would not have gotten there on my own. But that but that does make a lot of sense. And it's nicer than reading like. I wanted to come and reap a harvest of donations because I'm really in a lot of debt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that doesn't seem to fit in with the lofty, the loftiness of the first part of the letter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to add on this section? I mean, I know we could talk about it forever, but. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's, yeah, there's more one could say for sure, but I think, I think we've covered it we well enough for it. today. Enough for today. Great. We should always leave wanting more. So we have two more verses. I'm going to pick up in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Yeah. Hmm. So complicated, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wasn't clear to you. No, I mean, okay. I'm just kidding. It's it, not clear. <laughs> no, it was not. I really am sort of uh, arrested by this first. I am not ashamed of the yeah. gospel. Talk about that. 
I'm arrested because of course he's not ashamed of the gospel. Mm. Of course he's not. Like he's he's an evangelizer. Like of course he's not ashamed of the gospel. But then that presses me to think like but what else is under there? And it makes me sort of sort of climb back into that experience that I'm projecting, but that I imagine that I was talking about before about how hard it is to keep trying to spread this message that, I mean, if some, it's really, really hard to talk about God in new ways. Yes. And even when you believe they're true, if you know the other person hasn't had the experience that you have had, and doesn't hold the set of beliefs that you have, you know what they're going to think of what you're saying. Right. You are making yourself look foolish in their eyes. And you're choosing to do it again and again. And sometimes it will work. And, I mean, maybe that's like a really negative view of what evangelizing is, but that (laughs) has been my experience. It's just really hard to talk about God in new ways that are not the established, you know— norm of how we're supposed to talk about these things. Yeah. And I think that's really insightful. You know, what Paul is saying about God is actually is kind of a new thing in yeah. a Roman context, right? Because in Rome- we, we, It is, we absolutely. We're in a polytheistic environment and this whole idea that Jesus was God raised from the dead. So he's saying something really radical. And so in that sense, it's so new and so different and so challenging that it could be embarrassing. Yeah. I do think like the fact that it follows right on where he's just talked about Greeks and barbarians, like elite people and non-elites. And so like, there's a certain kind of like confidence that uh, sophisticated people have Mm -hmm. that saying things like this man was raised from the dead and it totally changes the whole way that the world works. Like there's a certain amount of scoffing that's going (laughs) to, that's going to take place when you say that. People are going to say, no, it doesn't. My world looks the same. That's exactly right. And so Paul just, yeah, he's he's got the chutzpah mm-hmm. to just go and make that clear. Mm-hmm. And I think in some sense he's acknowledging, as, as I think you're saying, that it is like some people do find it embarrassing. Mm-hmm. I know lots of people who kind of soft pedal totally. the gospel and make it sound like much more palatable than it probably really could be. Yeah. Because we, we do worry about what. Yeah. What people are going to think. I just think it's such a sort of, clever is not the right word, artful way to say yeah. it. Yeah. Because it, he's not accusing other people of being yes. ashamed of it. He's giving you permission. He's just saying, I'm not ashamed of it. But the very fact that he has to say he's not ashamed of it. Yes. Names the fact that you could be. Yes. You know? That's exactly right. Yeah, I, I love that insight, Amy. And, you know, the more that you say that, like, this is actually the way that I think oftentimes about what I do when I go speak places is like, that's my, like, I don't talk about like, oh, we ought to be doing, or we need to be doing, or we should be doing, or I just say it mm-hmm. as though I believe it is true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then people think like, oh, or like, you know, when you preach a, a gospel that has more of a justice edge to it, then sometimes the gospel is presented in the public sphere and you don't apologize for it. And you just say, like, this is it. Like, this is what I believe. Right. That can be very inspiring to people without making them feel self-conscious. I, I think that, I, I love that way of, I love that way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I think I just compared myself to Paul. That was not probably not a great look. You did. <laughs> <laughs> you did not compare yourself to Paul. 
Okay, then it gets more confusing to me, Bobby. So mm. the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. Yes. Huh? <laughs> Here's my grunt. Huh? Huh? <laughs> and I don't know if it's helpful to read one or both of these words, faith, as faithfulness. So, yeah, there's a lot to work on here. The from faith for faith thing, the CEB gives it as from faithfulness for faith, which I think mm-hmm. I don't, I'd have to think through a little bit uh, why they got it that way. But it's, and then they have a footnote on faithfulness that says or faith, and then they have a footnote on faith that says or faithfulness. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so funny. we have pinpointed the question. Great. Yeah. Great. Here's how I read that, which is probably either Beverly Gaventa or N.T. Wright, who are the people that I've sort of have been reading recently on on this, is that the first faithfulness is God's faithfulness to humankind. The second faithfulness is humankind's Mm -hmm. or Christian's faithful response. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of capturing the sort of idea that first God is faithful toward us and that then inspires us to be faithful in return. Mm-hmm. I let that, that connects to the way I was thinking about Emuna earlier. That that yes. that it really it's it's both sides of it. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I like that, Amy. Like you're sort of you're like blowing my mind a little bit with this. Like now we've got God in this sort of mutual encouragement. Yeah, now where- totally. There was the mutuality with Paul in the community, and now it's a mutuality between God and yeah. You know, community of followers. And it's not just God sitting up there in heaven with some sort of divine ledger saying like, you, I have the expectation that you should be faithful. But instead, God's got some like initiative and here, I'm going to light your fire. And then faithfulness Mm -hmm. in return is like giving something back and keeping God's fire lit too. I I really love that. Yeah, that's, that's a big thought. We're lighting God's fire in some way. <laughs> it's got a little Jim Morrison going on in my head now, which totally ruins that image, but what can you do? I almost don't even want to talk about this, but I know that we should. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Is that is that too big of something to talk about? <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's important. Yeah. Can you, do you want to talk about the way that that strikes you? So I guess what I hear in there is... What I hear in there feels feels good in my kishkis and my guts. That is like God has this relationship of mutual faithfulness had already with the Jews, and mm-hmm. and they're still there. That's not past tense, and and also to the Greek, like it's it's both. Like you don't have to choose between yeah the two, yeah. I think that's a really great reading of this text and one that I want us to hold on to sort of as we keep reading Romans, because I think that's important. One of the things that's complicated with Paul is that sometimes he uses Jew to mean a Jewish person who has become a believer Mm -hmm. in Jesus, Mm -hmm. in which case what he means is the gospel of Jesus Christ started with Jewish followers and now it's also Greek followers. And sometimes he uses Jew to mean Jews who are still Jewish. Mm-hmm. And exactly which one he means where is not always entirely clear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think at a minimum, what this passage is trying to do is to say that this gospel that came through Jewish believers in Jesus is now spread to Gentile believers 
and that's all part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to sort of smooth over any kind of break between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Mm-hmm. But I really love your more expansive reading. I think it's entirely keeping with Romans. Beverly Gaventa, uh, the Bible Worm Collaborative, put me onto this book of hers called Win in Romans, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I love that title. Mm-hmm. But her, like, sh- her whole thing is about the expansiveness of God's desire for salvation, which we can talk about that word here in just a second too, mm-hmm. which includes ultimately not just Gentiles and Jews, but also creation itself, which we'll see when we get to Romans 8. So if I understand the way you were reading it, which I want to affirm, it's that God has for a long time by now had a covenant with the Jews and God is faithful to that covenant. So what the Jesus story is doing is it is making that covenant now available also to Gentiles. So God's salvation has expanded, right? Not that it's shifted from Mm -hmm. people who used to have it to the people who now have it in this sort of supersessionist way. But to say God has the one covenant that God is faithful to, that was first. God has this new covenant that God is faithful to, which includes the Gentiles. And these are both true covenants because God is faithful. I like that reading. I, it, it's not the way it is always read, mm-hmm, but I mm-hmm. think it's a totally reasonable and, and useful way of reading it. Yeah. No, and I understand the other one too. Mm-hmm. But uh, we don't want to do that one. No, we don't. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, last verse of the reading. We still have faith and faithfulness on the table. Mm-hmm. And we add in righteousness into our little yeah. stew here. The righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. Yeah. How does the righteousness of God play into all of this? Yeah. And then it's the righteous person will live by faith, which is coming mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. Habakkuk 2.4. And so... Yeah, that observation that we we start with God's righteousness, God's faithfulness, human faithfulness, human righteousness. So you've got this like, yeah, yeah, enfolded like A, B, mm-hmm. B prime, A prime yep, kind yep. of thing. The like chiastic structure of exactly faith, <laughs> yeah. spiritual development. Yeah. So human righteous, faithfulness and righteousness is enveloped in God's righteousness and faithfulness. I, I really, I really love that a lot. I just think that righteousness there is a reference to sort of God's, how do you talk about tzedakah in Hebrew? I feel like you talk talk about about it it? in interesting ways. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's, hmm. It's um, doing, oh, gosh, doing the right thing in the sense of you are trying to move things closer to the sense of justice in the world that is described in the biblical text. Yes. And like we have the power in our daily lives to eke things a little closer to that yes. in a lot of different ways. And we should do them. Yes. <laughs> and it's perfectly reasonable to talk about God's righteousness in that sense, right? Like mm-hmm. humans do that and God also does that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you. that is not how I would immediately have read this verse, but I like that a lot. And it really ties back to the idea of sort of mutuality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the way it makes sense to me is that God is sort of acting in ways in the world that nudge the world closer to justice. Mm-hmm. And God is faithful to us. And so when we live in faithful response to God, then we also then we must also move the world toward justice. Mm. This comes back to our conversation about Matthew, where we talked about righteousness 
well, we didn't, Matthew did, about righteousness that way, all the way from the birth story, all the way through. And so I think this is just a reaffirmation of that, that Mm -hmm. when we trust in God and when God trusts in us, uh, then we work together to move the world closer toward the kind of just community that God has in mind. That brings us back to the word salvation, which at least in the CEB appears in Verse 16, God's yes. power for salvation to yes, all who have faith in does. God. Yep. Salvation, you know, often gets sort of read uh, nowadays as like, where's your soul going to go when you die? But salvation in this context was, I mean, it was about that, but it was also about setting free from the power of oppression in the world here and now, right? And so when you're in Rome or writing to Rome, talking about God's salvation, you are talking about God's salvation from the world as it has been constructed by Rome Mm -hmm. in order to instantiate this kingdom of God on earth, which has extensions into some future reality. And so it comes back to the conversation we had all the way through Matthew, I think, about um, what what this is about is proclaiming a gospel that says Caesar is no longer Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, the way that Rome has ordered the world in ways that are unjust is no longer the way the world is going to be, but we're working together with God toward this new kind of just world. And that's what salvation is. That's what righteousness is. That's what faithfulness is. That's how I, that's how I put that together. I love that. That like you tied that all the way around. It was coming into like reconstructionist, the founder of reconstructionist Reconstructions and Mordecai Kaplan talks about salvation as in a sort of similar way. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Mm. Amy, okay. I think I might have just concluded. I think I might have just did my concluding oh. statement. <laughs> that was so like subtle. What I, you just like what I just said there. a minute ago. Like, y'all, let's go and do that. Like, let's trust Let's trust that God is bringing about a new world and, and, and that is closer to justice. And let's go and be faithful in our response, not be ashamed of our role. And not be and, ashamed of it, to say the new thing. And let's yeah. talk to people about a, a more just world that is possible. The other piece that, uh, that in our conversation that has also inspired me, that's really the piece, what I was just saying. But this thing about mutuality, mm-hmm. I think, is really important and, and encouragement of one another in that task mm-hmm. of spreading this kind of radical gospel. I want to hang on to that too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, Bobby. And I think, I think that what's rising up for me is really just sort of a, to maybe put an exclamation point on the last thing that you said in particular is this, is that like the month between, uh, month and change between Passover and Shavuot, which is, you know, Easter and Pentecost-ish. Yeah. It's the Jewish month of ER. A lot of it is a Jewish month of ER. And, and it's, <laughs> I've heard it described as sort of the, like, you're back from vacation. Like, life is not all salvific events and theophanies. Like, sometimes yeah. you're just in the day-to-day. Like, great, yeah. okay, now you're in the desert. And there are miracles, but it's the, yeah. it's manna. It's the same miracle every day. Yeah. So it's hard to see it. And it gets tiring. And it's hard. And, and, and how do we live in that world? Because that's really what a lot of our world is. Yeah. looks like. And I think a lot of it is remembering always to stoke each other's fire. Yeah. 
and to be willing to hear, feel the heat of someone else's fire yeah. and offer your own. And um, that's what lets us do the hard work. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I love that. I really love that. I feel like oftentimes we get in this sort of sense of like we're, we're competing with each other in some way. Or yes. Like, if I encourage you and like contribute to your community, like is it going to cost me and my community? Yeah. And this idea is not that. This idea is if we, if we can encourage each other and keep the fire stoked that it's better for everybody. Yeah. That seems important. Yeah. Well, next week we continue in Romans. We're in Romans for a couple weeks. We are reading about God's love poured out, which is mostly <laughs> in chapter five. Maybe we'll yeah. do a little, just a couple verses from chapter three. I look forward to seeing what's in there. Yeah, me too. This was a, this was a good conversation about a, a difficult text. It was, yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. I really appreciate it. All right, friend. It. I'll see you next time. All right. See you then. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many, many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next week as we continue in the Book of Romans with chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Until then, keep on digging.